transfer support or buying more goods. Either way, I, th- I think it's pretty clear that uh, I think through the ASEAN uh, meeting currently underway that India is uh, showing clear line of support for its neighbours. And what about the, the capital outflows? All four countries are now seeing quite large capital outflows, particularly maybe Pakistan. It's seen huge outflows uh, over the last few months, and that, that maybe could be the next one in the region to default. How big a problem are these outflows? Yeah, well, they are. If, uh, if you've got uh, a lot of dollar debt um, and you don't have the reserves to be able to throttle your currency, clearly it's, uh, it's more challenging. I think in the case of Pakistan, I think Pakistan have gone more quickly uh, through its recent change in government to go to the IMF and negotiate uh, loans. That'll then feed through to more confidence from other lenders. So I think Pakistan is, is in a challenging situation but has moved, I guess, more quickly. Sri Lanka is uh, unfortunately, you know, um, you know, is in, in serious trouble. So I think, uh, you know, they're, they're all unique. Um, I don't think it's a contagion driven by any particular country. I think there are stresses all around the world when it comes to inflation and, and what have you. But so it's really a currency um, matter. So the reserves are available to a country to absorb the depreciation and therefore the imported inflation is the challenging aspect. Toby, thanks very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. A final look at Asia-Pacific markets for this morning. The ASX 200 now in Australia, up a quarter of a percent. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen 0.2%. The Cosby in South Korea, up about two-thirds of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a gain of about 80 points or so for the Hang Seng at the Open later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning and all week. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, uh, cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms. Those showers are going to be heavy at times. Maximum temperature is going to be around 28 degrees. Showers will lessen uh, tomorrow. And then there'll be squally showers in the following couple of days after that. There is an amber rainstorm warning in force right now and also a thunderstorm warning. Temperature is 26 degrees, 97% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Schwoski with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The Centre for Health Protection says it's investigating a cluster of imported malaria cases from Africa, with many of the patients having travelled to Hong Kong from Guinea. Frank Jung reports. Since July, 30 male travelers arriving in Hong Kong were found to have the mosquito-borne infectious disease. 21 of them flew in from Guinea. The CHP said one of them, a 52-year-old man, passed away during hotel quarantine. Postmortem results reveal that he carried the malaria parasite. The other patients were sent to public hospitals for treatment, four of whom are under intensive care. The patient's companions have been placed under medical surveillance. The last local malaria infection took place in 1998, and there were seven and four cases reported in the SAR in 2020 and 2021. Hong Kong's daily COVID tally has topped the 5,000 mark, and health authorities say infections have not peaked yet. Wendy Wong with the details. Health authorities reported 5,020 cases, 247 of them imported. Dr. Chuan Shukwan of the Centre for Health Protection says the number of cases is still on the rise and urged people to remain vigilant and get tested if they feel unwell. And there were three more COVID-related deaths. Officials reported an outbreak at the tuberculosis and chest ward at Wong Tai Sin Hospital following a compassionate visit. A family member and four patients at the ward were infected. 
One of those patients, a 94-year-old woman, has since died. Officials say they're not sure about the source of the infection and that there are no plans to tighten compassionate visits. Two more childcare workers at a Prince Edward children's residential home have pleaded guilty to abusing youngsters there. Li Poiching and Cheung Yin both admitted to ill-treating or neglecting kids under their care at the residential home last year. Acting Principal Magistrate Peony Wong from the Kowloon City Court adjourned sentencing for the pair. Six other defendants who also appeared at court and faced charges linked to the child abuse scandal will have hearings at a later date. The FBI has arrested four current and former police officers in the city of Louisville over the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor, a woman whose death in 2020 became a focus of the Black Lives Matter protests across the United States. The officers are accused of using false information to obtain the search warrant used to raid Breonna Taylor's home, where the 26-year-old was killed. The lawyer for Ms. Taylor's family, Ben Crump, welcomed the announcement. It's the first time in my knowledge that the Justice Department has got any accountability for a police officer killing a black woman in the United States of America. So that's why we say this is a historic day. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, Andrew. Today is August 5th, and we're talking about the stuff of life, water, and water quality in Hong Kong and around the world. Now, people never think about water until there is a problem, and then all hell breaks loose. Well, now that problem is here, and it is literally falling on our heads today. A new study this week by Swiss and and Swedish researchers found that rainwater everywhere around the world is now unsafe to drink because of the presence of dangerous levels of so-called forever chemicals perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl, also known as PFAS. They're everywhere in consumer goods from nonstick pans to paint and waterproof clothing. So how is our drinking water affected? How are we affected? Can we avoid the worst effects of poisoned rainwater? And then after uh, 9 a.m., we're going to look at the new Dress Casual Fridays for civil servants like people here at RTHK. Uh, This is aimed at encouraging government staff to take part in more sports and recreational uh, activities and have a better work-life balance. Send us your thoughts, your questions, and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us at 2338-8266. We're going to be joining some some more guests later, but we're kicking off with David Von Eif, who is an associate researcher at Civic Exchange. Good morning, David. Good morning. Okay, David, uh, falling out of the sky, this report by the Swiss... And Swedish researchers claims that rainwater everywhere on the planet has these chemicals in it, uh, and they are at unacceptably high levels by most countries' uh, standards for this. Uh, what more can you tell us about this? How did we get here? Yeah, so I think you got, got to the point really early on. You know, PFAS was a chemical that's used pretty much ubiquitously uh, in industry, right? So it's in pretty much everything for uh, say, tan coating, even some clothing items due to its really good chemical properties, right? Very long-lasting, very uh, like anti-oil, anti-grease, anti-stick. So because it's in so many consumer products and it's so hard to treat, it just builds up in the environment. 
And how bad is it for us? I mean, you know, when there are other chemicals that have been found to be like lead, lead in gasoline or lead in paint, and then bans quickly came into place in their use. But where do these chemicals, where do the PFAS chemicals fall on that spectrum? So PFAS chemicals are associated with a couple of different health problems, um, but they are considered a cancer risk. So there are, they are pretty uh, serious. And if you look at the new EPA standards, the goal is to drive these levels to as low or as close as possible to zero. So they're looking at like, I think it's like 70 parts per trillion as an acceptable amount, which is almost zero. Okay, and what are we looking at currently in rainwater, according to this new study? Uh, remember that one? The levels in rainwater are significantly higher. They're in the part per billion range, which is, you know, an order of magnitude higher. All right, and when they say, when you say the, well, so for the EPA is one, one country, the United States, if you say they're trying to get rid of it, uh, my understanding is that part of the problem is that that stuff's out there and they, they call them forever chemicals because they will not degrade. They will not go away. Yep. So that is definitely a problem. So in the rainwater, you know, they build up and they don't really go away, like you said, but we can treat them. So like in Hong Kong, we use an activated charcoal system, which can absorb the PFAS out of the water, but it doesn't destroy it. So that piece of that activated charcoal then goes to a landfill and then it will eventually end up back in the environment through soil leaching or other processes. So at the moment, there really isn't a way to destroy it and that's a problem. But there are working on it. The other problem is there are other methods that remove it, but they're very, very expensive. And I, and I mean, presumably it would have to be undertaken on some kind of an insanely mass scale if it's already in rainwater everywhere on the planet. The problem is it's not just in rainwater. Because it's in rainwater, it also ends up in the soil. So you can have uh, you know, a construction site dust that kicks up and then it ends up in a, a, a water source, etc. Right, and you just said there are other ways uh, to remove it. What are the other ways that you were talking about, which uh, you said is uh, more expensive? Yes, so you have the activated charcoal, which is kind of a passive system. Then they have what they call like an ion exchange or a high-pressure membrane. So kind of like reverse osmosis, but using a specialized membrane with very tiny pores or with a, a certain kind of treatment so it will absorb the PFAS or reject the PFAS. And do you have any idea what the uh, uh, water quality is like right now in Hong Kong? So I was actually looking at that last night just to check. So in terms of the PFAS uh, chemicals, pretty much all of them are below the detectable standards, which is good. Um, but that's also one of the challenges. So if you look at like what I mentioned with the EPA rating, in a lot of places, the EPA's current rating is below the detectable limit. So our current methods aren't really good enough. So we're still coming up with new methods of even checking the water to see what the true level is. Mm, so we know it's out there, but you know when they say that it's too much, we're not even sure that we're confident about those numbers. So it could be even more. Well, in a way, yeah. We, our methods right now just aren't uh, sensitive enough to get to like the true number. So like we'll know it's like below 0 0.01 parts per billion, but 0 0.01 parts per billion is nowhere near 70 parts per trillion. It's right. still significantly high. Hmm. All right. We're joined on the line now by uh, Ho Kin Chung, who is a professor at the College of Marine Ecology and Environment at Shanghai Ocean University. He's also an ex-member of the government's Advisory Committee on Water Supplies. Uh, good morning, Professor Ho. 
Heck, good morning. Good morning. So uh, we've just been hearing from David Von Eye from uh, Civic Exchange. And, uh, it, you know, in particular to Hong Kong's water supply, um, uh-huh. does the Water Services Department target these particular chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, uh, perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl, do they target them to remove them from our uh, drinking water? Yes, and I have met uh, actually it's a toxic and, and I think it is harmful to our health and I think so it is the role of the water supplies department to remove it you know, uh, from our drinking water in order to ensure the safety of our citizens. And how long have they been doing that? Like targeting and, uh, these specific chemicals? Yeah, actually, you know, it is a special chemical that we call heavy metal. And uh, for this time, it is the manganese. And actually, this manganese is uh, actually harmful to our nervous system. And so, you know, for a long time, you know, it is the target of the water supplies department. Oh, okay. So this is a separate news story, also connected to Hong Kong water. So, so Dr. Or, sorry, Professor Ho, to this point, we've been talking about the PFAS chemicals, uh-huh. the perfluoroalkyl. Yeah. And polyfluoroalkyl, yeah. uh, yes. but you're you're also raising the issue of manganese in yes, water supplies in some some yeah. parts of Hong Kong, which broke in the yes. news today. Yes, and uh, actually, uh, what you're talking about is the so-called persistent organic chemicals. Yeah, that is very persistent, and you're also carcinogenic. And uh, so far, you uh, in the world, uh, lots so many countries, you it has uh, very strict. Uh, regulation on uh, regulating them because yeah, actually, first of all, it is in very trace amount, and uh, more of the harms are actually accumulated through the food chain uh, from the directly from the water supply uh, system. Right, and uh, you know, so to come back, how long has the government, the Hong Kong government, been targeting the PFAS, the forever chemicals? How long have they been targeting these chemicals to remove them from our water? And I think that's probably the years uh, after the lead water events and after that the department you know, established uh, what so-called uh, uh, drinking water safety committee uh, in which I am also one of the members. And after that, you know, we study your know, various chemicals in the water system and you know, starting uh, our target in uh, controlling them. So like in the 1990s or in the 2000s? And uh, I think uh, 2015, something. <laughs> oh, so quite recently. So they might have been floating around for a long time before we started taking them out of the water supply. Yes, and uh, actually, you know, uh, that is longly you know, existed in the water system, but, you know, so far it, it, it is not included in the so-called uh, WHO guidelines. So uh, that the water supplies department didn't uh, so- give any attention to them in the past, but and we want to strengthen you know, our drinking water standard. And so we look for more chemicals so that to ensure the health of the citizens. So, Professor Ho, would you say the, uh, the drinking water in Hong Kong right now is pretty mm-hmm. safe uh, from these PFAS uh, chemicals? Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, we can hardly you know, avoid from the contamination of this kind of chemical because it is widely existed in the ecosystem. Uh, particularly, you know, some of them are dissolved or suspended in your particles you know, in the water system. So it has been long you know, existed in the ecosystem. So, but a you lot know, until recently, you know, we pay particular attention to them after a lot of research papers being published. 
Right. Yeah. If, I, if I look at the Water Supplies Department website, would, would I be able to tell how much uh, PFAS is in the uh, water supply that, I, that I'm drinking? And I, actually, according to the morning things, it's so far disclosed by the department. They said they, uh, you know, they could not uh, keep a very exact picture you know, on the amount of them, on the concentration of them. But let's say that you're well below the public control guideline standard, <laughs> something like that. And, and how regular do, does the uh, water supplies department uh, carry out inspections of the water quality in Hong Kong? Uh, actually, you know, uh, ensuring the water standard is actually you know, one of the cause control you know, in the water supply system. So it has long been doing you know, uh, since the, uh, 100 years ago, you know, we implemented the drinking water supplies to citizens. But you know, for this chemical, you know, that's so much depend on you know, whether we are aware of them and also you know, we have so far that technique and machine you know, in order to detect them. So that's a problem. You know, right. Until recently, we can do something on that. Yeah, and I mean, earlier, uh, Andrew was talking about this uh, study uh, which found lots of PFAS in the rainwater everywhere around the world. And uh, today we have the amber rainstorm warning. So there's a lot of rainfall coming down in Hong Kong. Um, yes, I mean, do you think a more regular inspection should be carried out by the water supplies department to, to check uh, how safe our water is? You know, certainly, we should do more. You know, actually, your know, atmospheric contamination is becoming increasingly uh, heavy. You know, in the Pearl River Delta, especially, you know, with more economic activity and industrial activity being conducted, and you know, we have a very commercial you know, city in Hong Kong and you know, close to Pearl Delta. And so you look at the regional impact, you know, of course, we should do more in the future. David Von Eif, you said earlier that, you know, of course, it's falling out of the sky, so it's in the rainwater, it's in the soil. Um, are yep. plants taking it up and then the feed that we give to our animals that we then also eat? I mean, like, is it, is it in all of our food? Can we possibly avoid it? Sorry, sorry, David? Yeah, I haven't read too many studies on that, actually. But um, if it's in the water, then it would make sense that it would be in food as well. And I believe they've actually found it in people. So we know it is in our system. So it is incredibly difficult to avoid. Yeah. Professor Ho, did you, did you have something to add to that about, about these chemicals finding their way into the soil and then the food chain? Yeah, the problem is it, is, uh, it appears everywhere in the world. And, you know, some in the air, some in the water, and you know, in the water, of course, while it, it's soft and being you know, used for uh, agricultural practice, uh, that would go into our food chain and you know, very affecting our blood system and others. Okay, um, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, Professor Ho uh, kind of brought up this issue. We have a separate water issue that has come out also this week, where residents in some parts of Hong Kong have been detecting. Uh, well, the residents were detecting manganese. They just noticed their water was yellow and smelled weird and tasted weird. And, of course, they have a red flag. Uh, are either of you familiar with this particular case? Uh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. we'll maybe we'll go with Professor Ho. Yes, yeah, so, sorry. And I think it is you know, the yellow disorder. I think it is not you know, uh, an uncommon event in Hong Kong. And, you know, you know for a lot of time, you know, we detected what the water that is also yellow in color, but for this type that is you know, particularly 
uh, interesting because that is related to the quality control system of the water supply department. But then you know, in the past that many due to the poor uh, water pipe maintenance in the past. Mm. And, and David, uh, if you're if you're familiar with this case, where is the point of failure? Why why is it one particular uh, residential area is getting this in this particular camp, this particular heavy metal in their water supply? Okay, so it's probably you know Hong Kong has 20 different water supply uh, like treatment works, so it's probably due to where that particular treatment works is sourcing its raw water. Um, this is actually something I think it's a little less common in Hong Kong, but it's more common where I'm from, um, especially with if you're on well water. Um, and it's actually not the first case I've read about this year. Uh, there's been a couple in the U.S. and one, I believe, in the U.K. as well. Um, you get a lot of extra manganese in the water usually when you have kind of like dry weather and hot weather, and you end up leaching extra manganese from the soil which then makes it very difficult for the treatment work to treat it. It's very kind of set with their dosing of how much chemical they like to add. Okay, so so you're saying when it gets dried up, now is this maybe because we're drawing the water from the reservoirs, so it comes out of the soil, and they're like, oh, normally we put in this much of a counteragent. Uh, what, like, is it some kind of a buffer chemical that they use to, uh, to absorb yep. it and then remove from the yeah, water? Yeah. yeah, normally, you know, there's always going to be trace metals in your water, like manganese, and we add something like potassium permanganate to deal with uh, those manganese chemicals. And if there's just too much manganese in the water, then it's hard for the treatment system to keep up with it. Right. So it's like if you've ever done pool maintenance or watched the, the pool guys do it, you know, they, they always have to put a little bit of this chemical, a little bit of that chemical. But if the conditions change rapidly, uh, the dosage is wrong and then the water goes off. Is it yep, pretty basically. much the same thing? So is this is this something we should be really worried about, like a major systemic failure by government, or is this like uh, they just need to do a little fine tuning? They'll be able to get it back in. Yeah, this one one of the ones water treatment works tend to have a hard time with because they can spike and then go down, and you don't really want to add a whole lot of chemical. Then the chemical uh, is coming in disappears quickly, uh, and luckily manganese is a fairly safe material. Your main issue is you know you don't want to stain your laundry when you. Uh, do it. So you might want to add a little bit less bleach or maybe not wash your wipes until it clears up. Okay, good. Well, there's some practical uh, <laughs> home home management, domestic domestic management tips there. We're getting uh, unexpected on the show today. What what other uh, what other events do we have in Hong Kong water that indicates that there's something's gone wrong that people should be on the lookout for? I mean, the ones that happen the most often. Uh, for, I, I think for me, I'm more concerned about the source of the mechanism. Actually. Can we uh, make sure that our drinking water, I mean, if I'm at home, how do I make sure my drinking water is safe? I mean, do I just uh, use a filter or um, like what uh, David von Eif just uh, said earlier, that I just put uh, charcoal in my water? What, what should I do? Uh, actually, in the water supply department so far, it's like, look, they have two processes. So the first process is a uh, process so by uh, coordination that will be at in your certain type of chlorine or some kind of uh, particles, uh, some kind of 
chemical 係阿林，原來我就住 precipitate， 有啲誒 heavy metals， 有 well before go into a drinking pipe。Right, so first you got to kill the living things, and then you got to take out, then you got to take out the heavy metals and the rest of it.、Um, uh, actually, chlorine has two kind of impacts. The first kind is removing a certain kind of pollutant. The second is your killing of the pathogens. Right, like bacteria, viruses, amoebas. Yes, including helminthes, parasites. Yeah, and、uh, I think you know,、uh, so uh, in the water supply system, you know, they have that kind of treatment system, and very, you know, they have certain kind of biological monitoring. You know, they cultivate ten、uh, or fishes you know, to see you know, what happened to fishes, and so that you know, that biological impact you know, will not happen again in the human being. Right, David. Do you have a follow-up for that?、Oh, sorry, it was a bit hard to hear. But、uh, you know, Hong Kong water is generally pretty good at the end line. If you're concerned about the water quality in your house,、um, you can get like a water filter.、Um, you can also, if you're really concerned, you know, go on like an Amazon and purchase a water test just to confirm that your water is clean. Really? What, what, what are those? What, I didn't realize you could do at home. You, you could get an at-home test delivered to your home and do it yourself. What do those do DIY tests? What do they test for?、Yeah, uh, there's different ones. You have DIY tests for lead. You have DIY tests for other chemicals as well. Okay, good. I've just had a I just had a raft of emails、uh, put in front of me here. It's worth noting that most、uh, I'm. I'm going to try to get these in because we are getting close to the top of the hour.、Uh, Richard, the second.、Uh, it is worth noting that most non-stick items, including frying pans and takeout food packaging, are non-stick greaseproof because they are lined with PFAS.、Yep. So it is widespread in daily use for food. That is a direct source as well. So maybe if people are making lifestyle choices and they want to avoid those,、uh, please do. And I'm going to save the other two for after the show. So we can, we can get our DIY tests at home.、Uh, I think you know we had a scare a few years ago. Some of the, I believe it was some of the public housing. There's somebody from the, the former Democratic Party identified. Was it lead in the yeah. pipes? Yeah, yeah and, it was、um, due to the plumbing code at the time.、Uh, I think some of the plumbers went off code and had used lead-based solder. Okay, and right, and I, I mean it took a while to get to that,、uh, but I think initially they took water samples and took them to private labs in Hong Kong. Is that right? Can you still do that? Probably can. That's just going to be a more expensive option. Sure. I mean, P- Professor Ho, are you familiar with the private testing alternatives? Yeah, of course. That's a lot of water testing company. They are privately operated, but you know, you know, as discussed by David, that would be very expensive for each individual to put a bottle for them to test. And so, you know, I think it is the major role of the government to do the job. <laughs> yeah, because I remember, I remember when that happened. I was living in a Much older building, and、uh, let's say that there was one guy that owned the building, and let's just say he wasn't very enthusiastic about spending his own money on building maintenance, to say the least.、Yep. So, so I was I was seriously considering, you know, looking into these these types of options. When you, when you say it's expensive, what do you mean, like hundred thousand dollars or like five hundred bucks? No, no.、Uh, I mean, in terms of HPD,、um, back when I was in the U.S., when I was doing water testing, we would pay I think about a hundred U.S. per sample.、Um, For the testing kits, I think you're going to be more in like the ten to twenty dollar range. Oh, so the DIY stuff's cheap. Yep, it's because you're only really testing for like one or two parameters, so it's much cheaper.、Uh, you know, you do it once and you throw it away. You send it to a lab; they're going to do like the full EPA range of testing, so you're going to pay significantly more for that. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Professor, have you ever done that, uh, pr- done a private company test? Uh, well, I think, you, you know, testing water is very expensive, and in fact, you cannot test every drop of water then soon to save So what important is the quality control and quality assurance system you know, that is well implemented by the government. I think uh, that is far important than that. But uh, more ridiculous in Hong Kong is that, that the water quality is controlled, you know, under the water supplies audience, you know, that is under the authority of the water supplies department. But, you know, once it entered the building, it is the role of the uh, building department, you know, the, or the housing department to control the maintenance of the water pipeline. More of the time, the problem is happen, you know, inside the building rather than, you know, so, Professor Ho, would you uh, support the idea of like uh, for for people to actually get their own uh, test kits uh, online and test the water themselves? No, you know, I don't think it is a very good option. I think you know, more important is uh, first of all quality assurance. Secondly, if you really want to do something rather, you know, we add a filter, what filter in our water pipe you know, that can help us to remove all the rather than you know we test every drop of water before we drink. <laughs> So now, now is not the time to panic, but I think as a, as a people, we have to do some serious thinking uh, about how we use PFAS in, in industry and in society uh, going forward, because like I said, the problem is literally falling on our heads. I want to thank our two guests for the first part of the show today. That was Ho Kin Chung, professor, uh, College of Marine Ecology and Environment at the Shanghai Ocean University, former member of the government's advisory committee on water supplies. Uh, we also had with us David von Eif. Uh, he's an associate researcher of Civic Exchange. I'm going to give you a quick hit on the weather before we go to the news at the top of the hour. It's 26 degrees Celsius, 96% humidity. There is an amber rainstorm warning in effect and a thunderstorm warning. So people watch out out there. Make sure you got your umbrella. Cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms. And now get ready for the news. evidence that, up until recently, his companies were earning around $800,000 a day selling diet supplements, gun paraphernalia and survivalist equipment. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And we're back on Back Chat on May Andrew Work, and this is Janice Wong. Hi, Janice. Hi. Hey, okay. So for the rest of the program today, we are looking at the new Dress Casual Fridays for Civil Servants. Probably not you, unless you are also a civil servant. It is aimed at encouraging government staff to take part in more sports and recreational activities. I want to know how this will result in healthier, higher-performing government employees. Or are we just going to get a parade of sweaty, sweatsuit-clad bureaucrats and a parchix preening in Lululemon pants? Let's find out. To help us answer these and all of your questions, we have Leslie Tang, Head of Client Solutions in Greater China for Randstad Hong Kong. Good morning, Leslie Tang. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Janice. Thanks for having me on. Hey, we're also joined by Frank Fu, who is the Emeritus Professor at the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health, Hong Kong Baptist University. Uh, so good, to, morning. good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Professor Fu. So, I mean, you know, we've had casual Fridays in place for a long time, but this seems a little more pointed, a little more directed. They want it to be uh, not just dressed casual, but sporty like Sporty Spice version of it. Um, uh, Leslie Tang, is this, I know you guys have looked at things related to work-life balance, but I mean, uh, I'm trying to get the connection here. Maybe you can fill us in a little bit about what you guys know about this. Yeah, that's, that's, thanks for that question. So certainly we've been doing this research uh, for a while, and we've been kind of looking at the merits of you know what uh, work-life balance does for an average employee. 
And, and certainly when you look at the, the statistics uh, this year, it's been interesting that the 10 years that we've been doing this research, uh, quality of the work-life balance in terms of, you know, the, the salary and benefits and work-life balance have actually been on par. Uh, and we really look at this as, you know, when you look at Casual Fridays and the initiatives that the government is really looking at, it, it's been, as you said, offered by more progressive companies in the past. But the, the idea of it is really to set a tone and give smaller companies some guidelines on what they can do to help the average employee improve maybe time management, um, improve their work culture, uh, and help people kind of build connections over non-work-related activities. Okay. All right. Dress, dress casual Friday is a nice idea, but uh, like you just said, it's not exactly new in the private sector, is it? I mean, uh, how popular is it? I mean, do many companies do that? Yeah, we, when we kind of speak with the companies that we, we work with here at Randstad, we definitely see that a lot more companies nowadays, uh, you probably might have heard recently in the news with, you know, New World Development offering four-day work weeks. Uh, KPMG, as we know, have Blue Sky Fridays, where employees are ending work slightly on, early on Fridays. Uh, so as you said, it's not quite new. There are some industries out there, you know, the manufacturing or the supply chain and retail firms that might not be able to adhere to these sort of new policies, but basically they should still kind of create opportunities for employees to care about their physical and mental health, uh, maybe it's mental wellness days, hourly-based um, leaves, regular company events. I think the idea is really to kind of balance out the, the you know, the, the work that we have and the careers that we're kind of being led to on a daily basis, but be able to balance that with a more physical or, or more well-balanced lifestyle. Okay. And uh, Frank Fu, you're, you're with the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health. Is there a link between how you dress at work and how much physical activity you do in your life? I mean, I'm, I'm a little skeptical here. Yeah. Usually yeah. I change clothes to do sports. Right, right. I agree with you that we usually change uh, before we uh, go to play sport. I think that the connection is weak, but, you know, uh, you say promoting a sporting image, uh, giving a, uh, a balance between you know, physical and mental health from what you wear is also very weak. In the old days, I think this is used to use for fundraising, you know, for, for, for staff to wear, oh, yeah. casual wear. The, the employer would donate a certain amount to a charity, you know, society. And at that time, also, it was uh, used to save energy, you know, when we turn our air conditioner at 25 degrees, wearing casual uh, dress and clothing helps, you know. So uh, I, I think the connection is weak, but then you have to sell that. If you do it often enough, maybe people uh, would, would think of uh, sport related with casual uh, 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 clothing. You know? Yeah. Okay, one of our one of our listeners that emailed in today, they, they kind of share a little bit your your sense on the, the connection between the two of the correlation. He says, this is James speaking, uh, I hope a legacy of COVID is work and, and work from home options and more casual dress codes continue. I do not understand any correlation between casual dress and sporting activity. Perhaps a committee could be established. If, like Singapore, we adopt a more realistic dress code for the climate, not have freezing temperatures with public transport and offices, it would sound like a wonderful world. But this discussion has gone on for 25 years I've lived here, and nothing has changed. These changes could save the government money and have happier, more comfortable civil servants. Um, Leslie, you've been doing research on this. Uh, you published your, your study that you do every year on work-life balance. Are there concrete measures that show that companies or maybe a government that brings in these work-life balance elements, are there, are there any concrete uh, metrics that show that these things actually do result in a more productive workforce, a happier workforce? 
Yeah, well, yeah, good question, Andrew. I think when you kind of look at, uh, you know, the research that we do, and just to put a full disclaimer, we do this research, uh, we partner with a third-party uh, sort of insights company, and they basically do the research on our behalf, but it, uh, we call it the Randstad Employer Brand Research here. And we've been doing it for 10 years, and as you mentioned, there are merits to some of the, the studies that we do. Certainly when you look at what sort of casual dressing or, you know, sports attire, what it does in terms of the, the, the metrics that we're looking at, I think it, it's still it's still early days. I, I do believe, you know, as your listener James kind of mentioned, uh, that it, it sort of, you know, is there a correlation? I think that's something that we still kind of need to, need to look into. But certainly when you look at, you know, the mindset of having people being able to work in more relaxed attire, it does kind of adjust their mindset in terms of how they view productivity. Maybe they're coming in. Um, I know when I come in, I, I come in in, um, in very casual shoes, uh, but I do have, you know, dress shoes when I do go and meet clients. But certainly it, it makes for a more enjoyable work atmosphere. I'm able to walk around without too much pain. Um, you know, I think it's very important that, as, as I mentioned, uh, HR really has policies uh, that outline and clearly guidelines what is acceptable and not. Um, and I do believe that, you know, in terms of the, the right attire for work, is, is quite it, it would be quite beneficial, you know, especially in these hot climates that we have here in Hong Kong. But, but I mean, are there? I mean, there should be metrics that you can measure, right? Like in terms of productivity of employees, or reduced absenteeism on the days that you have the casual Fridays, or reduced sick days if people are actually uh, less stressed out or, or leading a more healthy lifestyle. I mean, th- those seem to be metrics that you could actually measure. And as as an employer, just kind of like vague feel good, you'd be like, no, actually, I can show this really works. Like, is anybody right. measuring yeah. that? Yeah, we, we actually do do uh, the researches within sort of this realm, and certainly we do look at sort of what the, you know, the effects of it, what are the benefits of it in terms of, you know, are you increasing productivity? Are people having, you know, less stress in their personal issues? Um, a healthier, as we know, you know, a healthier and well-rested employee is more likely to be focused and productive and productive at work. And certainly we do look at these metrics as something that we do partner with our insights company to look at and really investigate and evaluate whether or not, you know, the impacts of having a balanced Friday or, you know, casual Friday or, you know, being able to work more sporty attire, does that kind of impact the productivity of the, the average employee? We do look at that study. How about absenteeism and sick days? Um, absenteeism and sick days, I think those, it goes kind of hand in hand in the sense that, you know, when you look at um, what sort of the, 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 the impact of it, the, the long-term sustainable impact of it, I think we do study that, but certainly there are a lot more metrics that need to be involved, uh, just not so much in the sense that, you know, an average Casual Friday will impact that uh, on a day-to-day basis. And uh, Professor Fu, earlier you, you said uh, you don't believe that a uh, dress casual Friday will uh, will help uh, make uh, employees more sporty. But uh, do, do you agree with uh, what Mr. Tang said? I mean, and he just said uh, it, it will help uh, improve uh, staff's uh, mental health. Well, I guess you need to collect that over a long period of time. You do it on only one single day, once a year. I think the impact is very limited. It'll be every Friday. Not just one uh, every Friday. Friday. Well, yeah. Uh, then uh, people get used to it. Uh, so uh, I still think uh, you say you have to collect data over the matrix and all this is, is good. But uh, I, we did it many years ago. You know, remember? You know, I said you know for fundraising, uh, say, uh, so that we can have air conditioning race in twenty five degrees. But when you raise the air conditioning twenty five degrees, the, the productivity uh, decreases because it's so warm and, uh, and most circulation in a lot of offices are not very good. So you still have to uh, lower your air conditioning to about 23 degrees in order to have uh, normal productivity. So, so it depends on what, how you go with it, you know. And uh, I, I see no data, no research. So the marketing side, 
maybe say it helps. Uh, I, re- I believe that uh, happy and soft may be more productive. I and mean, if you let them relax, uh, work in a relaxed atmosphere and uh, dress casually, maybe they, it helps. So, Professor Fu, if the government does want the want their staff to uh, be more active and take up uh, new sports or, or more sports activities, what do you think they should do instead? Oh, well, uh, well, there are many incentives that you can provide to encourage staff to participate in sport, right? You can organize more activity, you can do what the LCST is doing, uh, uh, sports for all, uh, they offer free facilities and, and programs to people, right? So there, there are more things, but the government can only do that much. The private sector must come in, you know. There are a lot of sport clubs, a lot of uh, uh, funded by the private sector, also funded by uh, major companies. They can do a lot more than just, just the government alone. Right. I mean, wouldn't flexible working hours be more helpful for people to do sports? Like, I, you know, I've been, I run my own, my own show and my, my day job. So, uh, you know, I start okay. work generally at 9.15, 9.30 or whenever because I exercise in the morning and then I just work later in the day. If I had, you know, sports, team sports tend to happen, you know, more in the evening. Uh, let employees come in early and get off work early. I mean, how can we don't have that as an option? I think flexible working hours has been in Hong Kong, uh, you think in North America, you know, in the summertime, because of a, they go to come to work at 8 and leave at 4, and then they can have a whole evening until at 9.30 with sunlight. Uh, but uh, that, 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 that helps, the flexible hours. Uh, people are talking about four-day week. The trouble with uh, my experience in Canada, when I worked there 30 years ago, when you have a four-day week, you have, you have a three-day uh, holiday. And then uh, people can work one week and... Uh, get off one week and eventually your overall coordination and your office and probability uh, will decrease because, you know, how, uh, if a staff follow a certain case, then he's off one week and, and uh, every, two, every two weeks he's gone for one week, then you have problems following with all these cases. So there are some merits and uh, demerits about having a long uh, four-day working week. You know? But flexible working hour, I think, is good. But uh, that, you should go with a seasonal, you know, uh, thing. Uh, but then you have, to, you need more product, uh, coordination among the staff involved. A lot of staff are off, you know, uh, every 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 week or so. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah Leslie. Yeah, to that point, I, I think it, I, I do agree uh, <laughs> with Mr. Fu in that sense that I think work-life balance is something that we, we've actually seen a lot of companies implement. Um, as top of the hour, I did mention, you know, we've already. In, Started instigating the 40 work week. Um, but you know, the, the merits of it is that in our report uh, that we've done in 10 years of research, work life balance is actually this year on par with salary benefits. So in years past, salary benefits has always been the top of mind for a lot of Hong Kongers. And certainly, as that sense of changes through COVID, through the impact of you know the great resignation, a lot of people have a lot of time to reflect on what work means to them. And we do find that uh, nowadays, work life balance, flexi working, being able to implement their work into their daily lives, very similar to what you do, Andrew, where you're able to have that exercise time in the morning and then come to work a little later. That's sort of, sort of what we're seeing the sentiment of a lot of people in Hong Kong wanting. So I do agree with that, Barrett, in, in the sense that uh, it, it is something that is a lot of uh, interest to a lot of people here in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other thing would be in putting in showers uh, at the workplace. I know very, you know, fancy schmancy companies like Goldman, <laughs> Goldman Sachs, they, they might have showers at the offices right. and gyms and things like that. Um, because, yeah, you don't want to show up at work as sweaty mess. I knew one woman, uh, Natalia, that I used to work with, and she would run from Repulse Bay to Wan Chai every morning. I mean, you know, she, she was an extreme case, but she did it because she knew she could have a shower when she got there so she could rock up to the office, you know, ready for action. Yeah, and we see that. I think the, the, the fact that the employee's sort of expectation on the employer in terms of, you know, not only the, the, the work-life balance piece and the salary piece, but there are a lot of other benefits I think uh, people need to sort of HR into a company to reflect on. That's kind of like what you said. Is it, it's kind of the employee journey, the employee experience. Um, I know that, you know, we have a lot of people in our company that uh, live a very and promote a very healthy lifestyle and being able to have sort of, you know, time where they can come and, as you said, you know, shower or being able to be in an office. Uh, some workplaces I know, or even flexible working spaces that I know of, also have showers implemented in their sort of their facilities. And I think that just makes for a better work-life atmosphere and better, better uh, overall environment for the average employee. Mm. What about other programs that uh, employers try to put on their staff? I mean, uh, are they are they kind of uh, do staff feel kind of like they're being browbeaten to go out and do something, or, or do people embrace them? Or what, what has been your experience in seeing corporate efforts to encourage more athletic uh, activity? Yeah, I think it did, and that, that brings a very good point, Andrew. I think that the fact is, you know, you really can't force everybody to, stay, to do the same activity. I know we spoke a little bit about sports, sporting attire, and doing sports. The fact is, there are people who just don't like doing that, and we have to respect that. Uh, you, you shouldn't sort of be blaming and shaming someone if they just don't turn off and, and, and being involved in the same recreational activity that you want to do. So I think it's important for a lot of companies to be inclusive and understand what is stopping these participants from, from doing these activities. Uh, maybe, you know, for myself, I, I have two young children, um, so, you know, it's not in the best sort of timing-wise for me to get off on a, on, a, on a Friday and be able to join sports clubs when I have to possibly take them to certain practices here and there. Mm -hmm. So it's really about understanding that everybody, in terms of where they are in their lives, have different sort of responsibilities, but, you know, also different interest levels. So, you know, when you kind of think about what is preventing them from being sort of an all-inclusive activity or preventing them from joining certain sports, I think it's important just to be as, be as sort of a liberal and free in these certain initiatives that you're running. And uh, Mr. Chang, when we talk about uh, dressing more casually uh, to work, it's not just happening in Hong Kong, but in many places around the world. Uh, to, to what extent do you think it's uh, related to uh, working from home during the pandemic? Yeah, I think we can sort of look at that merit, and I think it does probably play hand-in-hand hand a little bit. I, I certainly uh, have done it myself. I mean, coming from sort of uh, the last couple of years and being that our company, we really truly embrace the work-from-home culture. Uh, we were allowed sort of in our in our business to, for employees just to have two days to work from home. And I know that, you know, the, the sort of the, the sentiment is definitely being able to have a more uh, casual approach to your job is definitely very beneficial in certain certain states. But I definitely feel that, you know, the, the sort of the, the idea of being able to have that balanced approach, um, sort of the pros and cons of it is that it is going to develop a more healthier worker, um, you know, that you're more alert, you're more focused at work, uh, you're more connected to your workforce. Uh, but it's also important to understand that, you know, there are sort of um, cons in the sense that, you know, you, like you said, you don't want to develop sort of lack of motivation or being able to sort of come up just too casually. I think there needs to be certain guidelines that are being in place. Yeah, because I mean, I, to be honest, when I, when I saw this, I, I was like, dress casual Fridays, I'm like, isn't everywhere dress casual all the time? Like, I mean, you know, I've been, I've been here for 26 years dating myself again. Um, 
And I remember you used to get in the MTR in the morning, and like you'd see a lot of suits and ties and people in business suits. I'm like, I get in the MTR now. If I see somebody in a suit and tie, I'm like, wow, really? <laughs> I mean, it just seems like the, the tech ethos that kind of emerged in the 1990s, you know, back then it was like khaki pants and a, and a jacket, and then it kind of went to jeans and a jacket. I mean, it's on a steady downwards trajectory in terms of uh, casual wear. And I see even people working like in Venture Cap and a lot of people in Central. You know, there's still suits and ties around, but just just no. I mean, they, they seem to be in the minority almost. Um, the government says it wants to be leading in setting a tone for small companies. Uh, are they following? I mean, my, you know. Yeah, you know, there's not a blanket approach to these things, and, and that's a very good sort of a sort of a, a approach to how you're seeing it. And I definitely do kind of see that sentiment as well. But I, I definitely feel that with certain companies, they will have certain protocols that are in place. Uh, but nowadays, as you mentioned, you know, the fact uh, that employees are really embracing this, and I feel that companies are also doing the same, um, and companies are kind of reviewing what it is that they want for their employees, what the experience they want. And I know that certain companies that we work with here at Rent, that they definitely take this approach a little bit more liberally. Uh, but there are companies, like you mentioned, you know, the, the likes of uh, the banks. Uh, I know certain FS industries that are still adhering to your, you know, very appropriate professional attire that you need to come into. But definitely they're embracing the fact that you don't need to come into the workplace in that form. But you can certainly, you know, take, take time in the MTR. When it's so hot, it's blistering hot, you don't want to be putting a tie on and a jacket on. So I think you, what you see is not really what you always get in the office, right? Yeah, that's, no, that's very, very true. I feel bad for my tailor. I'm, I'm going to him now almost <laughs> exclusively for, like, short, you know, kind of short-sleeve uh, dress shirts that I can wear and, you know, look at a hip. But, you know, suits and ties, it's been a long you'll have a more interesting, time. Uh, you'll have a more interesting closet is all i got to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if, I do want to, Leslie, you, you've just recently put out a study. Uh, we, we've kind of obliquely mentioned it, but I want to explicitly mention that your study is out. Uh, it's on your website, and it's about Hong Kong and employee uh, priorities, right? We're talking about casual dress, but really it goes to work-life balance. And that in your study, I think the headline of the study was that this, this has emerged as the number one priority for Hong Kong workers above uh, salary and benefits. That's right. We, we've been doing this research, as I, I mentioned earlier. It's yeah. been our 10th year doing this research. Uh, when we kind of look at this research, we, we basically evaluate the top 75 companies in Hong Kong. And we get uh, sort of, sort of the, the general population. We interview thousands of uh, sort of, uh, you know, your average Hong Konger in the market just to ask them, you know, what they think about these companies. It's really about perception when we do this uh, research. And we get the, the, the respondents to basically evaluate these companies based on 10 certain EVPs. And the, the interesting thing, as I mentioned, was the past, in the last 10 years, salary has always been, salary and benefits has always been number one. And I think, you know, everybody can agree, Hong Kong is a very expensive place to live. Um, so it's, it's, no, it's a no-brainer that, you know, I think salary would always be top of mind. But this year, the interesting thing is that it's actually on par with work-life balance. And I think that shows you that, I think, for a lot of people in Hong Kong, salary might not be the be-all and end-all. It's really about work-life integration. It's about being able to marry my life with my family, with my kids, uh, being able to have that time for myself. And I, I do attribute a lot of that based on the fact that we had a lot of time during the pandemic, during you know COVID, to, that to really reflect on what it is that makes sense to us in our career, in our current lives. And I think that has really changed the sentiment of a lot of people. Are people giving up? Are they saying, you know, we, we hear this about young people saying, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I, I might as well have work-life balance. I'm just going to give up on the whole making enough money to have a wife, and which is really sad in some ways. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't generalize, but I certainly I've, heard, I've heard also heard that study. Uh, but we also, in our report, we actually do 
uh, dive a little bit deeper and we look at certain, uh, you know, we look at the boomers, we look at the Generation Z, the millennials, the, the Gen Xs, we look at different sort of um, the, the different metrics and sort of what attracts them. And it's interesting to know that for Generation Z, they do put work-life balance first, they put, set, you know, attractive salary benefits a second. Uh, but as you kind of get older in life, I think, you know, your taste buds change a little bit in terms of what you're looking for, what you're chasing for. Maybe it's joining a very financially healthy company. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, you're looking for a company that is, you know, stable in the market, that has a good reputation, able to give you a good career progression. So definitely your palate will change through time. But I think in Hong Kong, the sentiment now, as we're seeing in 2022, work-life balance is top of mind for a lot of people. Hmm. Your career palette, I like that. I've got a, a comment here from our Facebook page, which uh, other people can also uh, pile in. Uh, this is from Richard. He says uh, about the program from the government, he says, another confusing program from our government officials. After reading through the press release, I can only assume that if I dress sporty and go to work on Friday, this is going to make me actually go out on Saturday and Sunday and do some sports? Is this some weird carrot and stick thing? Uh, will this also mean the barbecue sites will open on the sport for all day? Uh, activity on the 7th of August. I guess, is there, the government has a sport for all day coming up? Yeah, yeah it's on Sunday, I think. This weekend, yeah. okay. Um, uh, Frank Fu, uh, can, you know, you're, you're, you're looking in terms of how people think about sport and health uh, in Hong Kong. I mean, he mentions opening barbecue pits. Uh, is there more the government could do maybe in reopening some of the facilities that help people to participate? I know, I know in my case, I'm looking at the water fountain thinking, Come on, guys, time to open up those water fountains. It's hot and sweaty out there, you know. Is, is there more the government could be doing to open up facilities that help people to exercise? Yeah, but with the, uh, but the, with the uh, rate, of the pandemic rate, over four or 5,000 a day, uh, I think those social distancing still needs to be enforced. Mm. But then, of course, there are more than the government can do, you know. You promote you, you identify one day at a uh, sports for all and uh, offer free facility and program to the public. I, I think that's fine, but I think one day is not, not enough. Uh, government can provide a leadership, but as I said, the private sector is very important. The private sports clubs and all these other uh, uh, sports clubs can join in and uh, offer free facility and free programs uh, for the public. And uh, once a year is not enough. Uh, to develop a sport carnival uh, embassy. You probably have to do it three or four times a, a year. Yeah, and I guess they're, they're kind of picking a strange time because it's either going to be 33 degrees or it's going to be under 30 degrees because it's raining and thunderstorms like today. But I guess maybe they had to pick a window when kids were out of school because it's a pretty narrow window this year with the way things have been going. Yeah, but then you can, by opening up a government facility and, and encouraging the private clubs, you still can see there are a lot of transportation facilities and programs in Hong Kong. You know? uh, having required people to book online, a lot of people will not be able to use it, like the elderly and the disabled. You know? So you used to advocate for a certain population, not just uh, you know, uh, once a year we did our job and that's it. You know? uh, we did our promotion. You know? uh, the sustainability aspect is important. I don't think once a year is able to sustain developing sport culture in Hong Kong. And Professor Fu, um, earlier you, when you were talking about the uh, dress casual day, you said uh, in the past it was carried out uh, when uh, when the AC was uh, was uh, yep. turned uh, to twenty five degrees. Right. Um, and and now uh, I mean a few I mean last week we saw many uh, very hot weather warning days. Uh, um, do you think? Uh, we should introduce something like that, like a dress casual day for uh, days when it's uh, very hot. Well, I, 
I see Andrew in uh, observation. You know, when I work in America, you know, there so many years. I only work highs uh, maybe once or twice a year. When I work in Hong Kong, you know, when I become an administrator like a dean or whatever, I, I have to uh, wear ties maybe every day to work. So, so that's a different. People expectation is a different from, from uh, you know, when you have to uh, make a presentation to to a company or whatever, you know, you know, you probably have to address a need, uh, not too casual. People link, you know, uh, neatness. Uh, uh, too casual uh, may not be effective, you know. So, so depending on your profession, I say, you know, I, I think dressing casual is good, uh, being sporty is good. But what what then? You know, you have to ask the question. Well, not just the, the, the clothing, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You need to I need a little more afterwards. I'll tell you what, I need a shower and I need a place to hang up my clothes, and then you got me. All right, and that is our show today on Backchat. I want to thank Leslie Tang, the head of client solutions in Greater China for Randstad Hong Kong, and Frank Fu, Emeritus Professor, Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at Hong Kong Baptist University. All right, that's our show today. Thanks to all our listeners for joining, and especially those that called and sent in emails. Big thanks to my co-host today, Janice Swimming Sandals for Friday Wong. Thank you. Our producer, Yuki Tiger Shoes Tong, my main sound man in the Scarpa Shoes, Andy. Today, he's playing Sifu to our new sound maestro in training, Sam the Adidas Man. All right, make sure you tune in Monday for more Back Chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse, presumably uh, suit and tied up. Ready to light up the airwaves on fire in this sweaty summer. Uh, again, it's going to be cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms today. Amber rainstorm warming, thunderstorm warnings. It's 26 degrees and the humidity is 94%. Here at Backchat, I'm Andrew Work in my skateboarding vans. Given the volatility of the pandemic, please get the third COVID-19 vaccination dose soon. The antibody level will drop over time after receiving a vaccine. Getting the third jab gives extra protection to guard against the virus. Most importantly, it reduces the risks of severe disease and death. The mutant strains are highly contagious. Get the first and second doses soon if you haven't done so, and receive the third one on time to protect yourself and those around you. Enhance protection. Get all three doses. The time is 9.30, and we now bring you the news with Andrew Chorosky. Thank you, Andrew. The Center for Health